Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to our text this morning, Galatians chapter 3. If you're going to be using a Bible provided for you in the chairs, it's in page 973. Today's message title is Christ Took Our Curse. He Became Our Curse. Just a little introduction while you're turning there. In a society that is increasingly teaching things like you've heard about the secret, right? You've ever heard of the secret? It's about self-empowerment, self-sufficiency, self-awareness, self-esteem, self-this, self-that we can unwittingly become conditioned as Christians to begin thinking that way in regards to our Christian life as well, self-empowerment. And it's the kind of Christianity that we hear of those people in the last days standing before Christ saying, I did this, I did that, but I did this, and I did that. And it's really all, it's, it's idolatry, isn't it? It's all about self the Bible says that in the last days, people will be lovers of self. People take selfies. They're very self-focused. It's all about themselves. So I think we can all tend to maybe start to do this in regards to our Christianity too. We can take the God-given responsibilities to worship Him and to glorify Him in exercising dominion, to be fruitful, to multiply, to be industrious, to be workers, to, to think though, that our salvation is then done in this regard of self-help and I've got to do and moralism and all these things. We can begin to take what we base our performance metrics on and similar to a job performance and we can do the same thing with our Christianity. Many like to run to what we call the law mode in order to have a scorecard a scorecard, so to speak, to measure how am I doing in this or that or that other thing. And those that are very performance-oriented in life, those who are perfectionists in their personalities, and those who are competitive as people often struggle with this way of the Christian faith, and they can give in to what's called legalism, law mode. Many people like scorecards because we like to measure our improvements, Those are not necessarily bad things in your work and in other areas of life. We are called to exercise dominion and to be excellent in everything that we do and to do all for the glory of God, but it needs to be seasoned in the grace of the gospel when it comes to your faith. What we see here is the Apostle Paul takes this scorecard approach in regards to salvation, and he takes this law-keeping, pharisaical mode of salvation, he pours gasoline on it, and he lights it on fire. So if that's been your mode of Christian faith, to be scorecard-oriented, performance-based oriented, to think that you can, you can curry more favor with God by trying harder, doing more, Paul takes that away from you and he puts it in the shredder. The law is good. We are to delight in the law of God. For in the law we see the perfection and the greatness and the holiness of God and what he intends for us. John Owen says, take away this law 
And there is left no standard of righteousness in mankind. The law is good, but what is it for? That's what we're seeking to answer today. The psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect. In being a means of common grace to this world, to provide order, justice, and common good for all people, but to also show us, as we will see today, our need. The law shows us a need for a rescuer, a redeemer. Only one alone is perfect, and he stands in our place. So let's read Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would do his illuminating work in our hearts and minds today, that we would understand this text and therefore be bound by this text to find all our freedom in Christ. So Father, bring us along further in our faith, strengthen it and grow it as we see the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency of Christ's redemption for us. Free us, Father, from our own performance. Free us from the bondage of worrying what other people think. Free us from our pride and our arrogance that we would fall on our faces and cry out, for Jesus Christ alone to free us and to be our life. May we rest completely in his work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his perfect life. Father, arrest our affections today for him alone. In Jesus' name, amen. And so in Galatians three ten through 4, 14, right away, I want to start out in verse 10 and just go phrase by phrase, and I want you to see how Paul builds his argument to strip us away from ourselves so that we will run to Christ. We need to understand a few things, what he means here by all who rely on or stand on to look to for salvation in the law, on or through the works of the law. It says here that they stand under a curse. In other words, they are damned. If they are trying to rely on the law for salvation, then they stand in judgment and they're in a standing of damnation in that moment. It also tells us here that really because of the curse of the law that there is a a judgment for that and it's to hang on a tree. You and I deserve to be hung on a tree. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, why? Why on earth would I? 
I'm a good person. I don't deserve to hang on a tree. But what we see here is that relying on the law, the law does its work of showing us what we actually deserve apart from Christ. My children are, are understanding this as we go through bits of catechism with them of what they actually deserve because of their sin, they know right away to say we, we deserve hell. We deserve damnation for one sin. Failing in one part, we deserve hell. We see that the purpose of the law was not understood here by these believers and by these false teachers. The law is designed to show us that you cannot keep it. That you stand in judgment apart from Christ. You and I are not good enough. We're not good looking enough. We're not strong enough. We can never outweigh our bad works with good works. If you're coming from that background, it doesn't work. The Bible says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble or mess up or fall short in one point, he has become guilty of it all shows us that you and I stand condemned. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are born in sin, the Bible says. The law comes to show us, show us that in us dwells no good thing. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. There are some here who walk around like they think they're righteous, They're good in and of themselves. You carry an air of, look at how great and good I am. The word pride and arrogance is written across some of your foreheads. For you, and especially for every single one of us here, the law is a means of grace. You say, wait a minute, how is the law a means of grace then? How is it that the law is gracious to us? It shows us that we are not good. That is the grace of God. Let me explain why law is grace. Why is it grace to be told that you're not good? You are not good enough. That in you dwells no good thing. Well, grace is God giving us what we do not deserve, right? Mercy is God withholding from us. Wait a minute. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve, okay? So do we deserve to be told the truth that us trying to save ourselves will not work? Does God owe us that? No. That a a dead person trying to rescue themselves from the grave will not work? Is that grace? We deserve hell and damnation. We're given a great gift when we realize this truth. We are sinners. That is God's grace, to be told we are sinners that we stand condemned in our state apart from Christ. The law is designed to make us stop resting in ourselves. And let me tell you something. People who are resting in themselves, are they happy people? Are they joyful people? Are they skipping around like, yay, look at me? No, in fact, if anything, they're burdened. They're tired. They're restless. Nothing's ever good enough. They're constantly frustrated. That's what I have found to be true. The law is designed to make us stop resting in ourselves. And when you run to Christ, you find all the freedom that you need to be joyful 
in Christ. Folks, the beginning, that is the beginning of freedom when we realize we can't do it. The answer to salvation and to freedom of life is not found within me. Try harder, do more, be better. It's found in Christ did it all. So many are looking for salvation in all the wrong places. They look for it in in themselves. They're looking for it in their performance. They're looking for it in other religions of the earth that are also telling them it's all about your performance. And it brings them into further bondage of do this, do that, in order to get dot, dot, dot closer to God. What we find over and over and over again is this, that the law condemns me, it condemns you. So God's word is twofold. God's word is God's law. It shows us not only how we have all sinned and how we all have fallen short of the glory of God, but that God is perfectly holy. God is righteous. He cannot allow sin in his presence. He's a thrice holy God. So many are looking for salvation and being a good person, trying to have that perfect appearance as a family, living in a state of constant worry that people are going to find out that maybe they're not perfect. This fear, this bondage is choking many of you. And here Paul is writing about grace, the grace to learn that the law, if you are depending on it, to be made right, will destroy you. Living in a constant state of relying on the law steals your peace, your joy, and your freedom. It curses you, and it curses those around you. So there's two people in this audience to speak to, those, first of all, who are Christians, who are being pulled back to a law mode way of life. The other one is someone who has yet to come to Christ, and God's grace covers both to teach them these things. So first of all, where are you at, believer? Where are you at in your Christian journey and understanding the purpose of the law being meant to drive you to the rest that is found in Christ, who is your Sabbath? Are you going back to trying to keep the law in order to get God to like you more, to accept you more, to think how great you are? Are you resting in the law to provide more grace instead of living in the free grace and immeasurable grace that is yours already in Christ Jesus? There are times in my life when I run back to a performance mode rather than enjoying the ongoing grace of God to freely exist, to be his child. And it's a subtle difference. It takes prayer and time to recognize the difference. But resting in Christ your Sabbath brings an inner peace that the Holy Spirit gives you to live before the face of God and all the freedom that you have been given. Not in an arrogance, not in a pride-based way of living, but in grace. So how about you moms and dads? Grandparents, are you modeling to your children and to your grandchildren and some of your great-grandchildren how to rely on the works of the law? Or are you teaching them grace? Are you placing the burden of that law on your children? Are you grooming them to bank on law-keeping instead of on Christ and his finished work? So many parents are resting in the law mode all the time. Let me tell you something. It's not only cursing you, it's cursing your children. It's a burden that Christ frees them from, and then we go and put it back on them. 
Don't get me wrong, they need law, but they need to understand the purpose of the law, that they need Christ to drive them to Jesus. The point being, give them far more of Christ. Err on the side of goodness and grace and mercy. Teach them that the joy of the Lord is their strength, not law-keeping. You can't keep it. They can't keep it. Why are we expecting them to? Don't burden them. Free them to their need for Christ. How about us as a people at Pine Grove? Are we guilty of hypocrisy in this? Do we live in the grace mode for ourselves and the move to law mode for other people? Do we seek to move the speck out of someone's eye while we smack them in the face with a telephone pole sticking out of our eye? How do we know if we're doing this? Okay, let's break it down. Let's get practical. How do we know if we're doing this? Are you harder on others than you are of yourself? Are you harder on other people than you are yourself? If not, be harder on yourself by the grace of God. Be thankful for God's love and forgiveness towards you and then go and do likewise for others. Learn the love of God. Do you accept when a brother or sister brings you the law to show you where you are wrong in order that you can be made right to run to Christ? Because that's grace, by the way. That's the purpose of the law. Do you accept that from a loving brother who's showing you you're failing and you need Christ? Those who are living in a constant state of hypocrisy do need the law to show them that they're wrong so that they can run to the grace of Christ. So how are we at giving rebuke properly and kindly, but also how are we at taking rebuke? Do we accept it? That moves us really then to the next point in Galatians 3.10 into the next verse in verse 11. So 3.10 tells us, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So you stand condemned if you're trying to rely on that. Verse 11 then says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified, that means made right, before God by the law. It's not the law that makes them right. Why? For the righteous shall live by faith. So Christ came to bring life in that you have it abundantly, abundant in good works. So you are not saved or made right by the law. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We just talked about that. So the law shows us that we're dead in our sins, that we have failed even in one point. We can't stand before God. The law shows us that we can't do right if we fail even in one point, which we all have because we're all sinners and we're guilty. The law shows our condemnation shows us we're cursed. It shows us our need for righteousness that you and I don't have in and of ourselves. So here's the question. How do you have life? Anybody think of a, a verse in John 14.6? Right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's all of Christ again. So that's where you have life. It's the big question. The believers here... We're being tempted to go back into observing the Mosaic Code for their salvation, for their justification. Okay, The Mosaic Code, what was it for? It was for the nation of Israel in three different ways, civil, ceremonially, and morally, how to live and be the people of God, right? So 
as believers now in Christ, who is the fulfillment of that, why do they need to go back? It's the wrong direction, isn't it? He was trying to show them that. Their need for the Savior was there, and he had come. That they're children of Abraham by faith. So the second part of 11 shows us how we're justified. For the righteous shall live by faith. It's not the law. So this is incredibly freeing, isn't it? It ought to be freeing to you that you don't have to go back to the Mosaic system to be made right with God. This is the way to life and fullness of joy and satisfaction. We are made in Christ by faith alone to be perfectly made right with God. It's not the law. Every other religion out there tells you you've got to do this or do that to be made right. But God is gracious to us to make sure that we really understand this point. So he tells us again in verse 12 then. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So he goes to great lengths to make sure that you get this, that the law is not of faith. It does provide temporal, earthly blessings to the Jew, shows us the character of God. In Leviticus 18.5, it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them, meaning there's common grace through that law. But it's always been about faith in Abraham. So Paul is pointing out here in the context of this passage that the Judaizers were using certain tactics to pull the people back into bondage to a code that was for Israelite temporal blessing. It was also used in Paul's context to show that it falls short of the eternal promises of God. So the purpose of the law is this. You cannot keep it. You're a sinner. You need someone, number two, other than you who could keep it. And there is only one righteous, that's Jesus Christ. So you see how Paul is building his argument to pull you away from self-sufficiency to find all your satisfaction and assurance of faith in Christ. Some of you struggle with assurance of faith. I want you to think to yourself, how many of you struggle with assurance of faith? If that's you, what do you need? Where is your salvation? It's not in your performance. It's not not in the extent of your faith. It's in the blood of Christ that was shed and is on the doorposts of your life so that God's wrath passes over you. That's the story of Scripture from beginning to end. Stop trusting in yourself. So this takes us to verse 13. Christ redeems you. You cannot redeem you. Stop trying. Christ redeems you. This Christ is God's son. It's Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. He is the one who God sent to be grace to us by becoming a curse for us. So this was done in redemption. It means that God has bought us back again, out of sin. How many of you recognize the phrase, I once was lost, but now I'm found? Was blind, but now I see. This is the whole thing. Christ he took our curse and he gave us righteousness. It's, it's an, a complete exchange. He took our death to give us his life. It's all about Christ and he gets all the glory. God redeeming is the story of scriptures. We are his creation. He owned us, then creation fell in Adam. We therefore are born in sin. That sin nature is embedded in us. It is our, in our DNA. Christ through his blood and his DNA purchases 
and appeases the wrath of the Father so that his wrath is not on us. God, being holy, has to deal with sin. He dealt with it through his Son. So God hates sin, and he hates the sinner. Some of you listening? God hates sin, and he hates the sinner. Some of you don't agree with that. God disagrees with you. Some of you have been lied to your whole life with this sentimental non-truth that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Because I am challenging the sentiment, some of you are already mad and have your heckles up and won't listen, but please listen. A wise person listens. Please listen. The scriptures are clear that there is only one way that we can be made right and have a relationship with God. It is through repenting of sin and walking in faith, and that is it. I think we get that. God crushed his own son because he hates sin. And it is only in Christ that we can come to the Father, right? You agree with that? But what happens to someone who never repents and believes or exercises faith in Christ in this life? Where do they go? You can say it. They go to hell. We don't say that lightly. It's hard. It's a hard truth. But it's truth nonetheless. So does the sin go to hell or does the sinner go to hell? Let me ask you this. Why don't you go to hell? Because of Christ, because what did, where did he go for us in the Apostles' Creed? Some of you might not believe with this, but I believe he conquered sin in hell in our place, so we don't go there. Said he descended. I, that's my point that I believe. You don't have to believe that, but you can believe that he conquered sin for us. I believe at the cross and then in the grave. Okay, But the point is, you and I don't go to hell. Why? Because Christ stood in our place, Right? So we don't go there. You don't have Christ, you go there. So does God hate the sin but love the sinner? Yes and no. Let's keep going. Psalm 11.5 says this, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers or sinners. Psalm 5, 4 through 5. David was a theologian. It's in the Bible. The Lord tests the righteous, but a soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm eleven five. So does God hate the sinner? What does God say? He does. But let's keep going. Here's the incredible mystery of God. We cannot figure this out because we're so binary and we're temporal. It is incredible. He simultaneously loves the sinner too. This is something that only an eternal, all-wise, good, holy God can do. You and I have a hard time with this, but God is God. Our finite minds can't comprehend this, but we take him at his word that he simultaneously loves at the same time. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. So we accept that by faith, don't we? And what's our job? As people who have been miraculously and in, in, in incredibly forgiven, what are we to do? We're to go forth and give people that gospel and share it with them and long for them to know the justification through Christ and through the love of God, right? So time doesn't permit to unpack all of that. 
whole volumes have been written on this this, this view of God, and you, if you want to have time to read through those, you can, but we've got to keep moving. God is good. He is kind. He is loving to provide a way to be made right through his son. This son took the curse upon himself that you and I will not be cursed. And notice what it says in this passage. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And there is the whole climax of this passage. Verse 14, this is how you become a child of Abraham. So are you a child of promise today? Are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Are you in covenant with God? It's not by being circumcised or baptized or being a good little boy who goes to church every Sunday and listens to classical music and is perfect at everything he or she does. It is Christ Jesus, through the Redeemer, through his blood and righteousness, believing in the sufficiency of his death, his atonement, his blood, his burial, his resurrection, his perfect life, that we become children of promise, children of Abraham, children of faith, children in covenant with God. That is it. It is through Christ that we as Gentiles become children of Abraham. This is how the church was grafted in with Israel, folks. It was promised and it has been done and it is fulfilled. We are a part of the one true people of God, a people of faith. We are one. We have the promise of the Spirit through faith. So we not only have the sign of the Spirit, but we have the ever-present working of the Spirit in us. So I would like to read a portion of Romans 11. Because there is only one people of faith. Romans 11 reads, is in regards to this concept from Paul as to the purpose behind our grafting in with Israel, with the people of faith. And as I'm reading this, I want you to think about the parable that we read last week. It's an incredible picture of who we are and how we came to faith. Romans 11. This is Israel and the Gentiles, and it has everything to do with what we're reading here in Galatians 3. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. It's the older brother. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am the the, the apostles of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Okay, so we shouldn't get arrogant about this. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. It's always about belief but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. I already said that once before. Don't get proud. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then, verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Didn't we just talk about that? Kindness, the love of God, but also he hates in the severity of God, and only God can do that properly. You and I can't. Trust him in this. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Resting in the kindness of God. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, if, excuse me, and even they, if they do not continue their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Okay? It's a lot to go through, but are you seeing what Paul's writing here in Galatians 3 and what he just wrote about there and how you and I, as a people, are grafted in as the people of God through his kindness, his grace, his mercy. It's about the root of faith, and that root has to be in Christ. It's not in ourselves. So this is the mystery of Israel's salvation and our salvation. It's a difficult passage. But we get back to the root of faith here. Christ took the curse. He fulfilled the Mosaic Code so it is completed. We don't go back to it. We run to Christ. Only he can keep it. He made a way for the Gentiles to be made as children of Abraham and has given us the Spirit so that you and I are the temple of God by faith in Christ. So in conclusion today, based on the text today, we conclude that there is no way that we on our own, in our own strength, in our own power, our own good works can ever fulfill the law of God. Stop trying to rest in that. What we need alone is the imputation to be given the righteousness, the obedience of Jesus Christ. We have his word, we have the spirit, we have one another. We have all things so that we can walk accordingly in Christ Jesus. Resting in Jesus Christ who is the end of the law for righteousness unto all who believe. I pray that you first of all know God. And if you have never repented of your sins, allowing the law of God to break your heart, that you turn your eyes to Christ and run to him, I pray that you find Christ today. I pray that the Spirit of God opens your eyes, makes you alive, that you cry out to Christ in faith, that God provides to you as a gift, that you come to know him. Some of you may think you're saved today, but you're relying on the law. Maybe you are saved and you've been doing that. Stop it. Find your freedom in Christ. Note his kindness. Run to him. Rest in him. Rest in the work of Christ. I pray that you repent of your pride, your arrogance. Run to Christ. He's very forgiving and kind. He wants you to live freely in Christ. Bob Inc. writes, We are not justified by ourselves. Not account of our wisdom, our piety, our works that we have performed in holiness of heart, but by faith from the beginning, the Almighty justifies. Let's pray. Father, your word is a hammer. 
And we thank you for that because it crushes our pride, but it reforms our heart to love Christ. So, Father, I pray that your word will do its work. We rest in your promise that it will not return void, but it will accomplish that which it set out to do. Forgive me and my failings today. I thank you that your grace is sufficient to do its work. We thank you, Father, for this church. These people have been purchased by your blood. Would they understand that and rest in that and rest in Christ who is our head. Help us to be the body that you desire us to be, that we would worship well and glorify you and care for one another. And most of all, help us to walk in the freedom that is ours in Christ because of his sufficient death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you that he was cursed in our place and not us. And so we rejoice knowing that we are your children, if indeed we have faith. In Jesus' name, amen.